Steve Friesen, and um, I'm talking to Joanne DeVries, and uh, Joanne's been kind enough, enough to sit with us and uh, uh, have a conversation, so we're just going to dive right in. So Joanne, welcome. Thank you for having me. I frankly don't actually know a lot about you, but I'm very curious. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? You mentioned that you, you actually grew up in Kelowna. How, how did you get into sustainability and the whole, the whole ball of wax? <laughs> okay. Well, I was born in Kelowna, and my dad um, came here. He was the sixth practicing physician in Kelowna back when the uh, Kelowna General Hospital was just a, a one single white cement square. And um, so it's changed a lot since then, and I've I've watched it with interest, and um, uh, in that some parts of the growth have been positive, um, many parts of the growth have not been positive. But I think the more we learn about sustainability, the more we can prevent those kinds of poor decisions that were made in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and now move toward a much more sustainable community. I, my, my career, I, I was trained in broadcast journalism and didn't practice actually with that. I became a newspaper reporter and photographer as a feature, feature specialist. And then I moved to Prince George for three years and bought a diet center franchise. Did that for three years, came home to Kelowna with a, um, to Lake Country actually, with a five month old baby and um, decided that I wanted to get back into equestrian sports, which is what I had done very competitively during my childhood and my early teen years. So I became certified as a coach and we bought some land in Okanagan Center and I built a, a training facility. And then after a few years of that, realizing that it was far too much work, uh, decided I wanted to get back into communication work. And so I was hired as a writer photographer for a full service ad agency and really loved the work but decided that I, I needed to go out on my own um, because basically I just don't like other people telling me what to do. So I started my own company which was called Oasis Creative Group and the first job that I got was doing a landfill brochure for the city of Kelowna. And at that point, there was, there was just sort of some rumbling about changes to, to solid waste management and, and how that could be made better and made more sustainable. And I was really interested in that. So, as it turned out, I pursued similar types of projects and um, that was 25 years ago and since then I have been a, an outreach and engagement specialist to local governments throughout BC about sustainability related issues. And, and so you're, you're on your own at that point, mm -hmm. specialized in uh, communications. Mm -hmm. Uh, and already back then, though, you knew sustainability was something that was uh, something you were wanted to wanted to maintain 
or develop an interest and and see if you could would would you say you were an activist like how did you think of yourself back then well i think because of an, an experience i had with my daughter when she was six years old i became not an activist so much as an advocate um and there is a difference certainly when you're trying to to run a business my daughter came home from school one day, so excited she could hardly contain herself, and she came running through the door saying, Mommy, Mommy, guess what? And I said, what? She said, we can change the world. We can start by recycling. And my heart just dropped, because at that point in my life, I was, I was um, too lazy to care about cans. And but she wouldn't give up on me. She came home for three days in a row after that and said, Mommy, when can we start recycling? And every day I made an excuse. And then by the third or fourth day, finally, I just couldn't make any more excuses because she looked at me with these big blue eyes. She stamped her, her foot and with tears streaming down her face said, Mommy, we have to. And it was at that point that I felt this shift in my heart about what the focus of my work should be. And that was um, around the time that I, that I uh, started to do this work with the city of Kelowna. And it, was, um, it just became more and more interesting to me and more imperative to me um, as I watched my kids growing up thinking that we have to leave them a place that is worth living in and um, so one thing led to another and I started doing work for a lot of different municipalities um, at excuse me at one point um, I was doing much of the communications work for the city of Kelowna that was before they had hired any communications staff and I worked with uh, the, the one communications officer there and did all kinds of different projects for them and did much of the work at the airport and did annual reports and, and um, the public engagement work for different types of planning processes like their official community plans and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's been a really fun ride. And, um, so what year would that have been when your daughter, uh, when your daughter was uh, age six, you said? That would have been about 1988. In 1988? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Can I tell you a, a story to relate? Yes. So <clears throat> I wasn't six, I was 13 and it was in 19, it would have been 1983. And um, we had a science project uh, to do in our class and my teacher, Mrs. Curry, she said, you can do it on whatever you want, you know. And so back then they had these really big uh, felt boards and they would come in like threes, they would unfold and then you could mount just about anything you wanted on them, uh, like for displays and so on. Mm -hmm. So it was like you could, you could, you know, as a young person, you could research things and you could get some experience like in 
graphic design really and communication right and so that that's sort of a, a, an angle and uh, so I'd never been given completely free reign like that before so I'm like where am I going to find an idea for a science project like this so I went into uh, the basement into my uh, dad's office and there he had row after row of National Geographics <clears throat> and I pulled one off the shelf and uh, it was a story, the feature was on the Amazon rainforest. And it told, it, it told the story about the Amazon, how, how diverse it was, how rich it was, how pristine it was. And then it proceeded to talk about deforestation. And this was in 1983, like I said. And back then the predictions that they were making was, you know they were looking ahead and they said if we don't do something now at the current rate by the time the year 2000 rolls around there's not going to be very much left and I was a young person 13 years old and it had the same kind of an emotional impact on me uh, that it sounds like your daughter had on you yes where you start to you you start to imagine um, beyond your experience now, but way into the future, about the decisions and the choices we're making together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very powerful. Oh, it is very powerful. And it was, it after about, oh my goodness, um, 15 years in, in the business, in the communications business with local governments, I decided that I wanted to take what I'd learned about sustainability at the community level and apply it in a different way. And that's when I founded the, um, the registered charity that I have called the Fresh Outlook Foundation. Fantastic. And so that's been going continuous since then. Yes. So that's been going since, um, since 2006. Twelve years now. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's been a, a great ride. It's it's um, the the passion of the foundation is inspiring community conversations for sustainable change, and so basically everything we do gets people together to talk about different aspects of sustainability, and so there are there are two very very clear um, premises around which we build all of our of all of our events. One being that sustainability involves and integrates social, cultural, environmental, and economic well-being. So in many fields of study, in, in, in social uh, fields, for example, or, or environmental fields, you typically discuss sustainability in those silos. But from my perspective, working with local governments, it's so important that we get together and talk about how those are all integrated and how when we do something in the environmental realm, for example, it affects social, cultural, and economic well-being ultimately. And so that was one premise. The other being that for discussions to be meaningful and productive, they had to include people from all sectors. And so that's government, business, nonprofits, academia, 
and the general public. And so our Building Sustainable Communities Conference, for example, that's our signature event. We have had up to 600 people from all over BC attending to learn about all aspects of sustainability and uh, with all people from all sectors around the table. And um, it's, uh, it's been really interesting how the focus of the foundation has evolved since 2006 to now, which is, a direct, which is directly correlated to how sustainability has evolved over those 12 years as well. So you've had a, a really large impact if you add up those, those 12 years and the number of people who've come through that system, or not system, but through those events and through your efforts. Well, in the beginning, I felt the conversations were so critical because people didn't understand sustainability. They didn't understand the breadth of it. They didn't understand the importance of it or the implications of doing nothing about it. Um, so basically, our first conference in 2006 was basically to help people understand sustainability. What is it? How does it affect people in different sectors? How, how important is it for, for people from different sectors to collaborate when it comes to talking and acting uh, toward being more sustainable? And we we drew a huge number of folks from local government because at that point um, sustainability in local government was very new. The discussions were very new and um, the elected officials, staff, nobody really knew what was going on, what was possible, what was expected from, from of them. It sounds like a lot like today. <laughs> well, actually, no, it's changed it's quite different. a bit. It's, it's, it's changed. Yes, it's changed. And over the years, our conference changed to reflect that, mm -hmm. how the evolution of, of the sustainability industry paradigm, however you want to, to name it. I, I guess what I mean is like that, that sort of iterative aspect, which is like a part of like a lot of communication challenges it's just it's like it's like like my background in architecture and design it's an iterative process i can go and design a house but then when i go on and move on to a new client it's it's a, it's repeating so you're constantly you're you're getting better and better hopefully over time at introducing people to to sort of what it, what's going on what matters what what's important to sort of pay attention to mm -hmm. I, I suppose and but so and so you've seen a change like you, you over time you've seen a, a an improvement or I don't know how would yes. you characterize it yes it is an improvement I think there's certainly a much better understanding of sustainability and local governments for example are mostly committed to that and and um as part of their signing on to the community climate action um, piece. That's been very important and very helpful. But I'm finding too that, that at the beginning, when we initially did our conferences, people from different sectors came and didn't really understand the importance of, of collaborating across sectors. 
now that is pretty standard practice where people from universities will work with people from local governments and from nonprofits and from business to to figure out what the best solutions are and that is the just another example of our premise that um, it's so important to have people from all sectors at the table. Now, initially people bought into that because they thought that's the right thing to do. You know, we should be inviting people from nonprofits and academia to our planning sessions as local governments or whatever. But the reality is that the, the most important reason to have so many different people around the table is that that's where you craft the best solutions. So if you get people from local government, as I mentioned, all those sectors, each of them brings something special to the table. So someone from local government, for example, will have totally different insights, ideas, and passions than someone from a nonprofit organization, for example, mm -hmm. or from business. But if you get all of those people around the table, you get the best of all of those coming together. Like a Venn diagram. <clears throat> it, it is, it's just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And not only do you get the best ideas, but that creates and supports long-term buy-in. Because people who have been part of a, a discussion about a solution are much more likely to hold the players accountable for for building that solution and implementing it from the ground up and those people again with a with a commitment to adaptive management will come together regularly and say this is working that could be done better uh, and then they get together and they have those discussions all over again mm -hmm. so as you you use the word iterative that's exactly what it is it's ideally an iterative process that continues to generate better and better ideas and solutions. And, and you've seen this, you've seen mm -hmm. ideas improve over time mm -hmm. and you've seen, um, uh, you've seen change, you've seen th ideas get implemented and you've seen actual measurable outcomes. Well, I can tell you when I first started, uh, consulting to local government 25 years ago, public engagement was undertaken by a few municipalities who thought they had to do it. And although they did it, they didn't buy into it enough that public input was reflected in the actual outcomes of a planning process, for example. Okay, so it wasn't visible to the public at that time. Well, it, it, it was visible to the public, but the, the elected officials weren't taking public input seriously. It was never reflected directly in planning documents or resulting policies. Okay. Now, 25 years later, for example, you see the Imagine Kelowna process, mm -hmm. which was a, a, you know, a very popular strategic planning exercise. And there were close to 5,000 people 
who were involved in that discussion at some point or another. And the city of Kelowna, I believe, is, is working hard to um, figure out how to best reflect that input mm. into plans and policies and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to, to showcase a strong commitment to um, real, authentic public engagement. It's such a, it's such a, a big project. Like the scale of it, when you have, you know, you, you know, 5,000 people um, giving their input on, um, on something as important as, you know, how, how do we, you know, sustainability uh, goals aside, just how do we want to live and work together? Uh, and what does that process look like? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I was to, um, you know, to put on my devil's advocate, I guess, hat on, you know, if, if I was to go to the grocery store to get some groceries, and but along the way I would stop and ask 5,000 people for their opinion on what I should be getting at the grocery store, I would, I would probably say, well, that's probably not, you know, a, a, a great approach. Um, because everyone's going to have, you know, their thing on their own list. Um, and then, of course, there's budgets to consider, too. Um, but, but, you know, that dynamic, that dynamic alone is fascinating. I think there's a lot of people, uh, you know, and, and as I'm listening to you describe this, even within my own self, I think it's pretty clear. Like, I'm thinking to myself, how do you, how do you manage that level of transparency that level of input, so that at the end of it, um, those five thousand people feel like, hey, that was that was worthwhile. That was mm -hmm. worthwhile, and 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 maybe maybe something they thought of or didn't think of, but decided was worthwhile. That they actually see that produced in the end. Mm -hmm. You know, um, because on the other side of it, you could suggest that well. Um, you know, if I'm not one of those 5,000 people, I might, I might say to myself, well, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to put my input. I'm not going to weigh in. I'm not going to educate myself on actually what's going on because they're going to make those decisions anyway. And um, they have their way of doing things. Um, and I'm just going to trust their process. So, um, like, how does that message come across to the public? And, and you've had a lot of exposure to this. Um, in terms of that community engagement process, obviously it works um, on some levels, but are there some challenges to that process as well? Well, I think um, historically, public engagement was handled by community planners um, hired by local governments to to conduct the processes and build a, an official community plan, for example. But as the public's demand for transparency and for input grew, um, so did the level of expertise for planning consultants. And most planning companies now have engagement specialists who do nothing but public engagements for different kinds of planning processes. 
including official community plans, liquid waste management plans, solid waste management plans. Those are all legislated to have a public engagement component. Um, <clears throat> I think that uh, when you have a, um, a robust engagement process, you get a really good idea of what people want and need because there are many ways people can provide input to that process. So in the beginning, for example, when I first started, public processes included an open house and that was it. You'd come and you'd set up your display boards and, and uh, people would mill around and talk about it. And at the end of the day, you'd congratulate, congratulate yourself because you, you'd done your due diligence. Well now, with technology, there are so many different opportunities for input. And that's a great thing because people have different preferences for how they like to share their opinions. And so, for example, uh, some people might like to read a newsletter that comes in the mail another, and that, has an, uh, that has an invite on the front page to, a, to an open house. Um, other people might like to go to an open house and actually talk face to face to planners and potential decision makers. Yet other people go online because they only have 10 minutes to spare. They want to share their opinions, but they only have 10 minutes to spare. So they go online and they complete a, an online survey. And with these kinds of numbers, when you're talking to four to 5,000, which what Imagine Kelowna had, you, you get a pretty good idea of the, the sense of it all. So by that I mean um, what is the, you know, what are the majority of people thinking about this issue and about that issue and how can we craft, craft outcomes that will reflect the majority of people's um, opinions. Mm. Um, you're not, you will never meet everyone's wants and needs. There's, that's pretty much impossible. But it's really important that you gather input from enough people and from enough um, through enough channels that you have a really good sense of what people are telling you. So that community engagement, community feedback, and, and reflecting back to the community that they are being heard and that their values essentially are, are your values as well. That what we're building here, we're doing it together. So you well, get buy-in. Yeah, that, um, I think staff at a local government level may be more, more aligned or more open to being aligned with what the public wants than perhaps elected officials are at times. And What's always been very frustrating to me is, for example, I would, I would design and implement uh, a strong public engagement process for a, for a planning process. And then you come back to the public with your outcomes and they say, yes, that's what we said. And then the local government takes that and they build plans and they create policies that reflect 
that input and then a year later they are changing their minds about things that are fundamental to the plan that they approved the year before. So for example, if you have a zoning, um, a zoning application that requests a change in zoning to allow a huge development in an area that was definitely not um, wanted for development in the planning process, um, I just find that very, very frustrating. How, how do we hold decision makers accountable to the public who actually took the time to share their ideas and their insights about the future of their community? You know, there's so many directions that we could go with this conversation. And to me, they're, they're, all, they're all valuable. They're all interesting. Um, and I'm, I've made a few notes here, and hopefully I can come back and, and we can touch on a few of them. But the one that's on at the top of my mind right now is 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 the one that you just mentioned is when it comes to especially at the municipal level, and you know we're coming close to the end of a municipal election cycle here, and. Um, in my conversations with people, what I'm hearing is there's a real question and a real concern, especially when I say I'm talking about sustainability and mental health. There's a question particularly on about um, sustainability um, and in regards to what, what can the municipal government do? How much influence can they actually have on sustainability? And my response is, from what I understand, is that it's really, uh, it's, the, it's the ability of the municipal government to, uh, like you said, shape policy and create a planning strategy for the community uh, so, that, so that we could together decide and make choices for the, for the direction. Um, I'm just going to take that one step further and then I'd like to get your feedback. Um, there's other forces at play beyond just what the public would like to see. And you've mentioned, you know, the different, the different uh, stakeholders, you know, one of them being the public, another one being business community, uh, another being the academic uh, world, uh, and then nonprofits as well. So there's a lot of uh, people who have a vested interest in, in, in how, how these decisions are made. Um, and then there's also the, the multiple levels of government. So that's a big part of the discussion too, um, as far as I understand, um, in terms of uh, the ability for um, cities to collect taxes. And, 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 and make decisions about how those resources are, are deployed. That's one. Another one would be, like you mentioned, like if there's a parcel of land um, that the public has said, you know, we would like it to be, you know, put to, to this use or particularly not for that use. Um, and then to find out later on down the road that those wishes or the, that understanding was either the perception is maybe it was lost or maybe they were railroaded or there were other interests 
Um, but there seems to be, in my opinion, um, um, a perception that you could say accountability somewhere gets lost along the way. So, I mean, I've, I've mentioned a few things there, but does any of that, um, is there anything there that you'd like to comment on or, or reflect back on in terms of, um, uh, in terms of um, your own experience? Well, just alluding back to something you said about local government's role in sustainability. Um, I think that local government is ideally positioned to not only plan for sustainable communities, but also to um, contribute very strongly to the design and the development of those of those of that community in partnership with people from other sectors. So you've got your business community, you've got your academic community, you've got your nonprofits and, and your students and the, and the general public. I think what's what's not happened yet that, that I would love to see happen is more transparent and authentic partnerships between local government and business, for example, to really build sustainability into our whole economic reality. I think there are many business people who still don't understand that to be sustainable can also be economically prosperous as well. There are so many examples around the world of businesses from all sectors working collaboratively with governments to build incredibly successful ventures that are not only prosperous but that meet and exceed a community's social, cultural and environmental goals as well. We need people who are willing to look outside the box and who are willing to take a stand. And that brings me to the whole issue of political will which I think is a, a huge one. Um, I, I mentioned to you earlier that um, in our discussion before you turned the mic on that, that um, I've never liked people telling me what to do and that's why I've always done my own thing. And so therefore if I were to be an elected official, I wouldn't be swayed by large interests that didn't have the community's best interests at heart. I know that would mean that maybe I would serve only one term and maybe I would be um, not taken seriously in many circles, but that is how I would do it. I think you have to stand up to people who don't understand yet that what's best for the community is also best for them in the long run. Well, that's a fantastic uh, message of optimism. That's what I'm hearing. Um, so it sounds like in your opinion that those levers of power for elected officials, those are in place because I think often the public perception and I would include myself in this, 
is that, well, there's only so and so much that your elected officials can do, particularly at the local level. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, no, this is a question about political will. So this becomes a question about who is that individual person yeah. who, who, is, who has been um, elected um, with the privilege to lead for, for, for a limited time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so really it becomes a question of uh, are you leading with purpose or are you simply uh, leading in such a way to, you know, you know, sustain your own political career or maintain, uh, maintain your own self-interests. So that's a very bold statement and, and something that you can say after uh, your many years of experience. You've seen uh, people come and people go um, in this role. Um, so I'm, I'd like to ask, is there anybody uh, in, in, the, in, you know, to, to take advantage of your, your, your knowledge and your experience, are there any leaders in, in Kelowna who really stand out to you um, in the whole time that you've lived here, uh, just from a personal characteristic level, that that person in at such and such a time, you know, if you could, is, is there anyone who jumps out at, at you who you could say that person really, really understood and, and he, he had the community's interests at heart and this is what he did? There are many people in many different sectors. So there, there are some people at the university, for example, who are doing amazing work of integrating what the university is learning into decision-making processes, for example. There are people like the late Bob Purdy, for example, who, who paddleboarded his way into history books because of his commitment to water protection. Um, and I could go on and on. But getting back to sustainable decision making, it's very difficult because sustainability is a very complex issue. It's not as easy as saying, well, so-and-so is sustainability minded because he believes this and does that. The fact is that that sustainability from a from an individual perspective changes throughout one's life. So your perception of your commitment to sustainability will mean different things to you at different times in your life and when you live in different places that are working at different jobs. So it's very complex and so getting back to the election, when you go to, to try to decide who you want to vote for and say you're committed to sustainability as a concept, how do you know what these people truly think um, or are willing to, to go to fight to bat for when it's such a such a multifaceted topic. It can be a hot potato. Um, I've, I've been talking to a lot of different people um, who I think, well, and, and they would be fantastic people to bring into the conversation. Um, you know, we're organizing this public forum uh, on uh, this coming Tuesday, October the 16th. And um, uh, so inviting people to talk, 
there's there's still a hesitancy actually to engage or to be identified um, uh, even though this is their these, these are people who engaged like in you know this is their full-time effort um, to to advance you know I'm thinking also in, in issues around mental health um, but they, they want to maintain a distance they want to maintain distance from the political process because they they don't want to be associated with the political process and I explained to them you know it's a public forum all the mayoral candidates will be there so um, but still there's a resistance to it and I find that interesting I, I don't know I don't know if you have any thoughts on that I'm still learning I mean uh, I'm still learning about how to, how to engage uh, people in this process but if you have any insights on that I'm all ears <laughs> well um, understandably so you have you have candidates who are interested in some issues and not in others and likely that's a function of either their their work or their uh, private interests their their hobbies that kind of thing um, I think it would be pretty unusual to have a, a candidate who was equally um, informed about and inspired about the full breadth of community issues that have to be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, but that's okay if you get a council where you've got a number of different people with different passions then you're going to get a, a balanced um, a balanced council mm -hmm. um, I think again it's very difficult for candidates given in this this technological world where everything happens so quickly they know they don't know about all of the different topics if they've not been exposed to information about climate change, for example, how can they answer um, knowledgeably about climate change when you pose that question? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's, um, you know, it, it behooves these people to, to at least become somewhat familiar with the major topics and um, it helps if they're articulate and if they have uh, connections within organizations that um, support their their interests and objectives, then then that's probably the best thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to. I think I've left a few loose ends here, and I want to see if I can tie tie some of these together. Uh, you talked about political will. Um, you know this sense of uh, personal leadership and responsibility. Um, and you also talked about, so, so I'd, I'd like to see if, um, uh, you know, is there, are, are there, are there tools at our disposal either as the public or to our elected officials where we can have, we can have more of a, more of a say, maybe it, maybe it comes to enforcement, but from what I understand, there's a lot of latitude when it comes to what the planning department is doing at the city versus um, the people who oversee the planning process uh, and, and, and what decisions are, are, are made or not made. So you gave that a great example of, you know, there may be a, a parcel of land that, um, that might be designated for a certain use and then, and then, it, and then it gets redesignated or rezoned and things like that. 
Um, uh, you know, do do you have? Is there anything in place for that in terms of account, like getting back accountability. to accountability? Um, uh, the public has to step up. Um, you know, it's it's our system is is such that we rely on our elected officials to make decisions about the current and future aspects of our communities. But we can't leave it there. If, for example, the NOCP says that a particular parcel of land is zoned such and such and um, because of public input should remain that that way then if city council is looking at rezoning that to allow a, a big development people have to be prepared to stand up and say no um, the only thing that will stop a, a council decision is public protest and depending on the strength of that protest and on the validity of the arguments that people propose, um, elected officials will will review that and reconsider how they you know how they should vote. But if they don't, if there's no feedback, they're going to do what they want to do every time, and and that's fine. We've elected them to do that, but we have to be there and to be ready to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, if, if um, we feel they're overstepping mm -hmm. their, their boundaries. So for someone like yourself in the, on, on the communication side, um, voter apathy is also something that's a dynamic here, it mm -hmm. plays well. Um, so you mentioned also like that in other parts of the world, there's other jurisdictions where there is transparency between business and government, and there is more of a focused strategic approach to getting things done in a sustainable manner. Mm -hmm. um, we've got, you know, you also mentioned the university and and the role that uh, academics can can play in, in terms of advancing some of the uh, some some of the goals around sustainability. Um, does does this tie into yes. yeah yes very much so we have the best tool ever invented to um, foster fabulous community development and that's called the internet I can almost guarantee that every single problem that the city of Kelowna faces or that the residents think the city faces have been worked through by a community somewhere in the world and I think it behooves us to do the research to find those case studies to take the outcomes to customize them in a way that meets our specific wants and needs but that allows us to move forward quickly um, I think uh, one of my biggest frustrations with local government is um, how how long it takes to get things done. The bureaucratic process is, is at times unimaginably slow. But this is a way of doing some quick and dirty research. Use your university. Get some, get some students in the economic department to do some research on how municipalities have partnered with 
manufacturers, for example, to, to explore the potential for eco-industrial parks. That's one example. Um, you find that there are maybe five communities in the world that have done this and upon closer scrutiny you see that oh well, this worked here this worked there this won't work here um, but you know whatever you pull all this stuff together and you get you get a presentation from these students saying this could work here if you do it this way and then city staff can take that and they can they can review it and dig a little deeper and and um, you know start talking with elected officials about what might be palatable that kind of thing excuse me so i think there's i think there's so much information out there about what's already being done and we need to we need to tap into that in a big way and I know this from having planned eight building sustainable communities conferences. There are people all over the world who come and talk about how they've developed social, socially sustainable structures that, that are also uh, economically focused and, and how they've done environmental work that has, has also uh, also kept cultural um, cultural stuff alive. Kept the cultural yeah, fabric. Yeah, exactly. That it's so that the environmental and cultural fabrics are woven together. How it, it's it's being done everywhere. Well, I'd like to ask you, like, um, you know, what are they doing that we're not? One of them that you mentioned is like it sounds to me as though. You take all these stakeholders and imagine them as bricks in a wall. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what's holding them all together? Because it's those, it's oftentimes a little bit like football or a baton, like what, passing the baton from one member to the other. There's, there's a handoff there. There's, there's information that gets lost or there's, you know, you know, I think there, there is, I think there is a risk perhaps, and I could be wrong, but when it comes to any time you've got a, a complex framework or, or, or complicated process that you know there 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 can be the risk that important information gets lost uh, at the end of the day um, you know most people understand uh, uh, at least hopefully their own personal finances but at a certain point uh, uh, in, in, in the public sphere um, there's always the fallback to say, well, we can't afford to change. We can't afford this project. We can't afford, maybe we can't even afford the time to look at a certain problem. Um, and uh, so if you could shed any light on that, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this connection between innovation and, and maybe even how technology has a role to play here uh, in terms of making sure that these, these conversations um, stay in the public uh, mm -hmm. sphere okay. long enough for us to sort of gain traction and apply sort of that that uh, uh, the the democratic uh, uh, pressure, if you want to call it that. I love your analogy of bricks in a wall and what is holding them together. Um, you look at the 
at the grout. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at your beautiful um, brick wall here. I think there are two things. I think one is the reality that the public increasingly expects transparency. So gone are the days when local governments can make decisions um, willy-nilly. The public is better educated, better informed now and I think that um, these stakeholders realize that and they they know that that at some level they will be held accountable for the decisions they make. The other thing I think that ties them together is hope because although as recently as yesterday I read about the, the Nobel winning climate action panel um, saying that it's too late. We've come to a point with climate change where short of a miracle, it's too late. As a grandmother of two, soon to be three, incredibly beautiful little babies, that breaks my heart. But at some level, I have to hope that not only what I do, but what all these other stakeholders do will, will be enough. That, that enough of us will, will understand and appreciate the, the needed change um, and that that tipping point will happen in time. Hmm. I have to believe that. Because if I don't, my heart dies. That's valuable. It's, we can talk about these issues in sort of quantitative terms, but you know, this, the quality of our lives, the quality of our lives matter, matters. Life, life will go on. Life does go on. The question becomes, do you know, this reminds me of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And he, he, he wrote, he, had, he, he, he said this phrase, amafate, which is Latin. I think it, I think it means uh, love your fate. It's a very powerful statement, and he says um, he he makes he makes uh, he makes the he he makes the case for saying, look, whatever is darkest in your own nature, that thing that you least want exposed, that you you don't want anyone to see, uh, you you will spend resources, energy, etc., time. Uh, just to ensure that that is that never comes to light he says if you're going to come to terms with your your humanity your human experience it's that darkest thing that thing that you least want to look at let alone have other people see that you have to come to terms with and bring that into the light and find a way to sanctify it and when you can do that 
you unleash a, a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of willfulness uh, and a tremendous amount of force that strips away, you know, a lot of the things that hold us back as individuals and as communities because we're made up of individuals. It's, it's all about vulnerability. And I've been doing a lot of reading lately, particularly Brene Brown, who is a, a social researcher slash storyteller who did 12 years of research on shame and vulnerability. And I'm finding now, the older I get, I'm 63, um, the older I get, the more willing I am to be vulnerable. And I'm finding that not only in my personal life, but in my professional life as well. So for example, with the Okanagan Sustainability Leadership Council, and you've been a part of that as well, I go and I'm probably one of the oldest people there. Now, a few years ago, that would have been distressing to me. But now I see myself as an elder and I see that I have a lot of experience and a lot of insights that are valuable. And what's most beautiful about that is that I don't have to hold back on those. I can share them, not caring what people think about me, because I'm on, you know, I'm, I just don't have to worry about that anymore. I don't have to answer to anyone else. Um, and so it feels really good being vulnerable, saying exactly how I feel and what I think, and, and um, I'm really loving that. I think that's fantastic. You know, part of the reason why we're here in, you know, sitting and having this conversation is because, you know, in the last few years, and I, and I shared this with you before uh, we, we started recording, um, you know, I, I moved here from Calgary four years ago, and I was looking for a place where, you know, after 10 years, uh, where, uh, you know, I, I worked in Calgary, moving here and coming to a place where I needed to find sort of a ground zero and sort of a place where I could like renegotiate in a sense. And that, that idea of negotiating and just coming to terms with the fact that you, you know, life is a negotiation. We are constantly negotiating from the time we wake up mm -hmm. until the end of the day. Um, and if you're like me, some nights when you can't sleep, you know, you're, you're negotiating all night. <laughs> <laughs> Been there. Yeah. Done that. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, that, sen that sense of vulnerability and, and what I've discovered in the last few years is like, look, okay, so you mentioned you're 63. I'm 48 now. And I think to myself, I'm, I'm already beginning to forget things. And I'm realizing that of all the things that I've studied and all the things that I've come across, and I consider myself a lifelong learner, at least a lifelong researcher. Maybe I'm not learning, but I'm at least exposing myself to the information. I'm never, I, there will never be a time in my life when, when I will know more than I know right now. So if I'm not prepared to act, if I'm not prepared to speak up, if I'm not prepared to offer what I think I have of value, then when? 
when will I when will I stop when will I say when when will I put my hand up and when will I expose myself in spite of all the shame guilt fear um, etc anxiety depression that hold you that hold me back that have held me back at what point do I say yes but or yes and I'm going to accept all of those things the positive and the negative and you know we all wear a mask we all have many many masks that we that we move out into the world with and, and we change them out depending on the, the, the scenario we're in um, and you know if you've done develop if you've done a lot of like self-developmental work like you mentioned Brene Brown and so on um, I've also found you know jump in anytime you like but um, I've also found in my own experience that it's good to take off the masks turn them around look at them say oh this is the mask I'm wearing this is the way I'm choosing to show up what happens if I put on a different mask or what if I walk into a situation with no mask it's very interesting to me to observe how do I show up as a different human being when I give myself the freedom to do that how do other people perceive me isn't that interesting I show up as a different person and people react to me differently is that the same person? Which, which Lindsay Friesen is showing up right now? Mm-hmm. And what I found at the end of the day is like there's, I, I, there's so many masks, there's so many Lindsay Friesens that the, it's inexhaustible. It's really inexhaustible. And, and whether you call it the ego or if you have a different name for it, it's, it's, a, it's a protection mechanism. We're all trying to protect ourselves. So what I've finally landed on for myself is just accept that you're not going to be able to take off all of the masks. You're never, all, you're never going to always be able to show up just as you want to. You're never going to be able to get that expected outcome exactly how you've imagined it. So I've decided for myself to stop trying to control the outcomes and go back, accept there are masks, and instead accept responsibility for the fact that I do have a choice over what my actions are and start with that and accept that in spite of those masks or maybe because of those masks what's greater than all those things and I think you touched on it and it's hope and I would also add love to love past your mask so show up with all of that vulnerability all that fear guilt and shame and whatever and do it anyway, you know, to use a cliche. Love it. I just love it. And, and I love your analogy of, of the masks. And um, over the last six months, I've, I've been coming face to face, very, very face to face, with a mask that has been painted on me uh, by our diet culture. I'm a woman. Um, we live in a... a, a, in a in a community or in a, in a society totally revolving around scarcity thinking. I'm not thin enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not stylish enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not enough. I'm never ever enough. And I had decided that, um, as, or I had discovered that as a result of of, the, of my response to diet culture that I had, uh, I had adopted disordered eating behaviors over the last 40 years. And I had, 
come to the point where they were so they were so part of who I was that I really didn't even think of them as being um, disordered. But then I decided to look deeper and, and work with a specialist and realized that yes, I, I don't have one of the, the three eating disorders, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, or binge eating disorder, but I do have very specific disordered eating behaviors. And so as a communication specialist, I tried to think of ways that I could use this journey that I'm on to help other people who are who have walked the same path that I have. And so I'm I'm launching a, a blog about my journey and an associated podcast. And I'm very, very excited about it. And although I know that I'm going to get some very cruel feedback from people. Um, for example, I'm, I'm a fairly small person, so when people look at me, they say, disordered eating, what are you talking about? You're a small person. Well, that has manifested itself for me in all kinds of different restrictive behaviors and um, body dysmorphia where uh, when I look in the mirror, I don't see what other people see. I see a body that's 20, 30 pounds heavier than, than what I actually am. So these are all things that I'm learning about. I'm coming to, 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 to um, as I say, come face to face with this part of me that has been dysfunctional for so long. And I feel really comfortable about doing that. And as I say, even though... I'm going to get abuse and even though people will say you know she ran the Fresh Outlook Foundation for 12 years how on earth you know how did she do that when she was struggling with this or why would she why would she come out and talk about this and and maybe uh, hamper people's opinion of her I don't care I really don't care I'm this is part of my journey I'm going to be vulnerable enough to share that and um, diet demons be damned. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I love that. I really do love that. Hmm. And I can, I can relate with that, you know, uh, with that sense of coming out, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, you know, the things that we're talking about now, we started the conversation out talking about, you know, very factual things, sustainability and so on, and uh, how to get things done. Um, you know, and now here we are talking about things that are closer to the heart. And I like the fact that we have the freedom to do that. It's the difference between community sustainability and individual sustainability. And quite frankly, while community sustainability is huge, um, we cannot be sustainable communities unless we're populated with sustainable individuals. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can honestly say that when I was in the, in the throes of both my consulting business and the Fresh Outlook Foundation, mm -hmm. I was not focused on individual sustainability and it caught up to me in a big way. Yeah. And um, it's, uh, you know, I think to, it, it's, Think global, act local. The act local has to be, you know, an internal thing as well. I, I, I agree. 
I agree. I agree. Um, you know, you know, and this this maybe goes back to if I can relate it back to when I was thirteen years old. You know, and I had that National Geographic magazine in my hands, and there was something out of place. You know, and and you know, I th I don't think it's a stretch to say that um, so much of our uh, lived experience, uh, the things that agitate us, for instance, like emotionally, like you 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 mentioned that you know some people aren't going to like what I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's not unimaginable for me. To, to think of that time when I was that young boy um, and you know what do I know about at that age even even now what do I know about what's happening in the Amazon as we speak you know to, to <laughs> use the phrase from our podcast which is called as we speak but if it isn't happening in my immediate uh, sphere of influence how can I really know? Like, for instance, even if I read a news story about what's happening on the other end of the world, yet I can still feel extremely emotionally upset about it, mm -hmm. or 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 motivated to do something about it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so these things that come into our lives that are outside of us, they 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 serve a purpose. There's a value there. You know, even if it's to act as a proxy, right? So. For instance, you know, if I feel triggered, so um, two months ago, I, you know, I mentioned ins insomnia. So I, I went for like weeks and weeks where I couldn't sleep and, and it affected me to the point where I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't focus my mind. I could start a task if I was lucky, but there's no way I was going to mm -hmm. finish it. And here I have to give a, a plug. Um, I, I decided I, I was going to start, I had to do something and I chose to float. Have you hmm. have you tried floating? I have a gift certificate in my purse that I haven't used yet. Awesome. Well, I can tell you that uh, I just yesterday or two days ago was my uh, last day. I, I purchased 30 days of un unlimited floating. Mm -hmm. And so I floated every day. I missed one or two, but I, I often went twice a day. So I, so I certainly averaged at least a float a day. And it was fantastic. It really did a great job of like, you know, I describe it sort of as it, it lowered my basal response level, like my level of reactivity to environmental stimulus. So I was able to, after four days, immediately I began to sleep better. Great. My mind, this fog sort of began to clear. And it took, I, I used an app actually to, to that measures the quality of your sleep. And over those 30 days, you know, you know, the first four days were quite dramatic, and then, but slowly over time, you, I could see a market improvement. And then, towards actually the end of the 30 days, all of a sudden, I started to get into uh, that a real, a real market improvement. Like, you know, uh -huh. there's different measurements that they use, but they used a percentage. So, I was supposedly getting over 80% sleep quality per night by the end of the 30 days. Um, but you know, it, it really was a good exercise for me to, to when you're in the tank, um, to clear the mind or to observe the thoughts yeah. and which thoughts are mine and which thoughts aren't mine. Which ones yeah. do I need to be responsible for and which ones can I simply let go of? What that says to me is how important it is for us to be aware of what's happening within ourselves at any given time. 
and how that's going to change over time. And um, I've been very aware the older I get of of the the stages of my life and how I've watched those unfold. And for example, when I was doing um, my communications business with local government, that was my sole focus. And other than my family, of course. Then the foundation took over. And although I still did some consulting work, um, I was so focused on the foundation that, um, you know, it took up most of my most of my work time and my spare time. I find now I'm, I'm moving past that. I'm I'm spending a lot more time with my with my grandchildren, for example, and that to me is is my priority. But then I'm also I'm still consulting because I have to have to eat, and I'm doing this blog thing. And what what's becoming really clear to me is how important it is to recognize those stages and let them go when they're done. Um, because it was really hard for me to let go of the Fresh Outlook Foundation. I mean, it's still operational, but it's, it's sort of on the shelf at this point until I decide if there's something else I really want to do with it. If I do, that's great. If I don't, that's fine too. So I'm really excited about that, about that um, being able to step outside mm. those stages and, and see that, you know, I did that. I'm proud of that. Time to do something else. Wow. I, I'm really loving that. That's exciting. You know, that's really, that's, that's, that's fantastic that you're, you know, you're teaching yourself how to you know, uh, there's more to life. There's always more to life, no matter what you're involved with. But you know what's really exciting, and, and I think with regard to the foundation has helped me come to that point, is that I believe that I'm leaving my work in really good hands. So for example, there's a, there's a teacher at the Vernon um, School, it's called Students Without Borders Academy. And every semester he takes 25 students from around that, that area. And for a whole semester they focus on sustainability. So for the last two Building Sustainable Communities conferences, he has brought his whole class for, for the whole conference. And when I talk with those, those kids, they're not kids anymore, when I talk with those young folks, and I listen to their passions and what they're doing, I feel so, so hopeful that we are leaving these problems in, in good hands. And I'm also seeing, I'm really happy um, with public engagement and how that is unfolding. As I mentioned earlier, when I started in, in the work, it was abysmal. And now I see some very, very um, talented and committed people doing really good work. And I love that. And the two of those go together so well. You've got the local governments doing the public engagement. You've got the young folks who can not only engage but do their own thing as well. And I believe that I have contributed to both of those. And that feels great, but now I've got to 
go on and do something different and more personal now. Okay, so I, I didn't know that. So does it? So does that mean uh, the Fresh Outlook Foundation um, and the events like you you do the big annual event? What is it in November? Uh, we we did it every other every eighteen months actually. Oh, every eighteen months. Yeah. And so does that does that mean that that's coming to an end? Um, that all depends. Uh, if it's a it's a huge amount of work. I did it myself. I did all of the organizational work, all of the programming, everything myself. So it took me a year and a half to do it. Um, and it was always a labor of love and ended up being an entirely volunteer um, work. And so I came to the conclusion that I wasn't prepared to do that again. And if someone, if a sponsor comes along and wants to wants to help us, then that would kickstart discussions again. But um, I'm, I'm, I think I've done enough volunteering and it's time to just do something else, as I say. Well, it's got to be sustainable. It has to be sustainable. And that's, that's always been the rub, is it's all about sustainability, but um, the foundation itself wasn't financially sustainable because I was doing it alone and I couldn't do all the programming and all the fundraising and all the administration um, on the side of my desk while I was also trying to run a consulting business. My goodness, I, d I had no idea. I, I was, when was the last one? It was last November. Okay, so I, I was at that A year one. ago. I was, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, a year ago. And I was at that and I was like, man, this is so fantastic. Like here in the Okanagan, and uh, you know, in the programming, it was really great. And I don't, you know, I'm not here to like, uh, you know, um, what's the word, um, you know, shine your can or whatever. But <laughs> you know that expression. But it really was, you know, and it made a, a very big impression on me that that was available. And so you're suggesting that that, you know, that at least as it has been won't necessarily continue so we would if we if we were to say okay if someone was to pick up the ball and run with it now we would be looking at six months from now if, if we were to think of that 18 month probably interval it would probably take another year so it would be 12 months right yeah. be, so we would have to yeah. get that thing moving again the most exciting thing about all of the i mean the the conferences are great but we also did uh, film festivals, kids camps, uh, women's gatherings, business gatherings. We did a bunch of different types of events. And what's so, so great for me is the stories I hear back about how the events have changed people's lives. And some significantly so. And it's, um, it is just so rewarding when I think about that and um, you know people changing at the personal you know the personal levels they've changed behaviors uh, families that have really taken up on what a kid who came to camp learned uh, businesses who have adopted much more sustainable practices uh, communities uh, different organizations it's just it's it's really exciting 
And that's what kept me going for so long. That's what kept you in it. Yeah. Wow. So, is there is there is there another organization in the Okanagan that's going to you know replace what you what you have done? Like is you know in other words like instead of reinventing the wheel, if somebody's listening to this podcast and says, well. Somebody ought to do that. I've been to the, you know, if they've been to the event and saying, you know, this really does need to continue. What would you say to them? I'd say thank you (laughs) for validating my Mm. work. Um, I'd also say let's talk because it's, it's always, partnerships are what it's all about. And, um... If we work together, we can we can make anything happen. And but so far, no one stepped up and said this is. No, well, no. Do people is, know that this is actually the first not? time that I've that I've shared this sort of evolution of the foundation? Okay. And so, as far as people know out there, they they're just assuming that six months from now they'll they'll be there'll be a sustainability conference to go to, and you'll be and you'll be the same same. Uh, face there yeah and I've had people approach me wanting to do it in Victoria um, and in Penticton doing different different um, you know different communities around the province and I've certainly entertained the thought of doing it in different provinces because um, you know there's there's much to be done across Canada Uh, BC municipalities for example because of their their connections to the climate action accord um, are more progressive about sustainability than municipalities in other provinces. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, there certainly could be, there could be much work done in different provinces across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that, that um, the, the Fresh Outlook Foundation won't do that work. It's just that it won't do that work uh, given the the structure that we've had right until now yeah well just to change the the topic a little bit you know I was speaking recently um, uh, I was at an event uh, sponsored by KPMG and it was uh, regarding mental health mm-hmm. and so that organization they have uh, the the first in North America I believe certainly the first in Canada the a chief mental health officer. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, um, it was a, it was a fantastic event. That was uh, that was just over a week ago that I was I was at that event, um, and and that that person, his name is uh, Denis Trottier. Mm-hmm. Have you heard the name? No. No, a fantastic story. And I was in that room, and there was. Um, you know, it was filled with, you know, all kinds of people, but there was a lot of people there from different parts of, of our community. And I would say that there was probably 50 people or less. It was at the Innovation Center in, in, in the theater that they have there. And everyone I spoke to there agreed, you know, it's really the sort of event where there, there ought to have been 3,000. Mm-hmm. Do you know? Like, yeah. it's one person and, and, and you know, and he's, Denny said himself, he's like, I'm an accountant. You know, uh, I've made my career in auditing businesses. He says, you know, I'm not a rock star. I'm not a personality. I'm not a celebrity. 
but he was he still had a very moving story and I have no doubt in my mind I, I, I think you know Prospera Place should be, is the proper venue for that kind of a that kind of a, a story that he shared and and it is online and I'm gonna actually see as part of this podcast um, I might put a link to, to his ah, YouTube conversation uh, story mm-hmm. on there um, that's a roundabout way to talk about um, a, a couple that I met there who I actually knew from an, a different circle and it's a similar story to your Fresh Outlook story because here's a woman and I, w- I would say I think she, she mentioned she's 70 now and for the last 30 years she uh, has been working with a group of women in Bolivia uh, do you know mm. the name or if I would I can't remember the, the name off of the top of my head um, but over over the last 30 years or more helping these women uh, su- sustain their own families provide food shelter education for their children and she did it by uh, creating a market here and they would do three markets one would be here actually in Winfield and they would do one annually and then they would do I think I believe one in one or two in in Alberta mm-hmm. and um, but there too, she did this all nonprofit, and so it was. Uh, she she was never really properly compensated for it, but this is what she did. She created a market over in Bolivia, uh, making uh, all kinds of alpaca uh, textiles, yeah. sweaters, and and ponchos and shawls and things like all all thing, all things like that. And here too, she's like, I'm I'm ready to pass it on. And she's worked with, you know, she's worked with other organizations trying to do the handoff and, and just hasn't been able to find, mm-hmm. uh, find the right fit. Mm-hmm. So, Well, I know that there, um, you know, I truly believe there's a time and place for everything. And I think that, that when, I, when I established the foundation, there was a very strong need for what I had to offer. I think that has changed over the course of 12 years as as the understanding of and commitment to sustainability has changed. But having said that, there are still things like the conference, like the EcoBlast Kids Camp, for example, that I think are still very valuable um, uh, resources for people. Hmm. And what I've learned about the conference over the years is that when we started, for example, at least half of the people there were local government. They were either staff or elected officials. Well, toward the end, uh, last year, for example, maybe 15-20% of the people were local government and a full 20% of the people, maybe even more, 25% were students. And that is so exciting to me hmm. because those are the people who who need to need to not only learn more about sustainability, but they they really do need to learn about how to collaborate with these other people because they know now that that's the only way we're going to expedite solutions is through those those collaborative mm-hmm. dialogues and and um, uh, projects, partnerships, mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that is maybe that's a good place for us to, to press pause on the conversation. 
I don't know where where are we at for time. Let's see. It is. Oh yeah. Um. Oh. Yeah, we should go. What time is it? Yeah, it's just before four. Oh, five to four! My okay. goodness! So, um, so just to wrap up here then, um...